Welcome back to the SSI Executive Conversations podcast. This is part two with Burke Toss, the CEO of Centiar. On this episode, Darwin and Burke continue their discussion about the direction of Centiar in the upcoming years, the importance of voice of customer, and Burke's personal career journey. For, for where you guys are at, um, let's give a little bit more information about uh, the company relevant to, you know, kind of what's the goal and direction Mm-hmm. that you're leading the company in over the next one to three years. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I want to so, make sure we get that, you know, we, yeah, we yeah. Get that promotional piece out for you. No, thank you. Thank you. So Centiar raised uh, around early this year, beginning of the year. And uh, currently we're putting that to use for deploying um, what we call our micro commercialization strategy, limited um, hospitals, limited accounts, And our primary objective, talking about KPIs, our primary objective is uh, validating the different value propositions that the system has. Mm. You know, what exactly does it do for the clinician? In which part of the procedure? How would that translate to long-term benefit for the patient? And currently that's what we're after, is, is assessing those specific value propositions. How do they use the system? There are zero equivalents to what we're doing right now. So there's nothing we can pull from history. We can't right. say last time people used a holographic guidance system. <laughs> right. This is how that works. Like there, there is no such thing. So you're trailblazing. Um, right. And and as a part of that, we need to, to learn how do they engage with the product? We have, you know, years of ideas, but I don't do cases, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, 99% of our team does not, they don't do cases. One does, and she has a lot of opinions herself. Um, and now we get to see it out in the wild as it goes out. So we have specific measures, specific accounts that we're, we're working on. And then the other thing we're um, working on is expanding our partnerships, which imaging systems we integrate with. Uh, we got approved with our integration with one of them and there's more coming. So we're working on those um, integrations. And then lastly, uh, we are focused on the team, how we're growing our team. We've already doubled in size over the last couple of years, a few more folks coming on. It's a transformational time for a team as they go through this kind of thing, especially as you emerge out of R&D only to, you still have to develop stuff, but you have now have a product in the field that you have to support. Right. What does that look like? Now you have feedback, right? Every week, there are six, eight clinical cases done with our system. There's just feedback coming in. What does that look like? How do you make sense of that? What processes do you implement? And inevitably, it comes with some controls that you didn't have before, which is a part of growing pain. You know, it creates a little bit of chaos. And uh, that chaos is important. You you do need to put some different things you didn't have before in place. So those are our focus points right now for the next, looking at next 12 months. I think beyond that, um, we're currently going through our strategy for what the next three years look like for us. You know, is Centiar supporting um, 
multiple partners in, in, in the long term? Are we continuing to develop new features for our product and adding uh, different abilities it doesn't have today to replace the status quo entirely? Or is there a different strategy in between? Do we take a more stepwise approach? Mm. So, you know, we will, we will let our customers tell us what they want to see. That is, I got to stop you right there because that, what you just said, hello, that is so smart and voice of the customer. Yes, you'll let, I mean, this, I, I maybe, you know, some people might would maybe be like, well, what, what do you mean stop? And no, that is so smart because there's so many scenarios where people don't listen to their customers. And uh, I just think that is, that was so smart. Yeah, you're, you, there's a, multiple ways you could go, but you're going to let your customers and the value that you bring to them determine what that the uh, most efficient and best direction is, is how I would state it. Right. And, and you don't do that by asking them, like, what should we do? You right, observe. Right. You watch them. Like, you go, you go engage. And that's mm -hmm. why limited commercialization. That's why your clinical and your commercial teams are so huge. It's, it's absolutely critical. And, and in my opinion, also, you, like, every time you emerge out of R&D, you must have a, a limited release where you can see your product in the wild, where you can observe that you, the principles of the business, I have seen 50 cases myself. Mm -hmm. I've been in those labs, sometimes on my own, with no one on our team. Because to me, that's where the gold is, right? Mm -hmm. You right. worked on it for so long, now you put it in the hands of people that have nothing to do with your business. They don't care whether you succeed or not. They just want their life to be better. Absolutely right. Right? Uh, and they want to treat their patients easier, more efficiently, more um, effectively. So that's where the gold is. And you got to observe. And, and that's when I say customers will tell us most likely they can't articulate what they want. But you will see it if you're there. And if you go too far out, in my opinion, you come out at R&D and you just go everywhere. Because now you have your FDA clearance. Why don't you sell it to a thousand accounts? Because then I don't get to see it. Right. Right. And, that, and then I don't know. Things. You're going to miss. And, in you know, um, you're going to make, clearly, I, I believe, there's going to be mistakes that are costly. Can it work that way? Yeah. There's a lot of examples, companies succeeding like that. I think they spend a lot more capital than they should. They probably go through a lot more pain than they should. Um, so I think a little bit of patience is critical at this stage. And going out and engaging and learning uh, from what's happening out there. So I agree. I think it does require a pause because it seems obvious what I said, but it doesn't get practiced often. It it doesn't. And you know whether it's uh, Bernie Haffey or Karen Posey or I, you know, work with uh, you know previous chief commercial officers or that are now consultants. I know story after story, companies that I've worked with where a focus is on something, it's like, that's not actually where companies think their number one, who their main focus is for customers or, and they don't even know, really know who their customers are. They're yeah. completely looking at the wrong data or have a perception of the data that's completely wrong. 
So I just think that's so, so smart. Um, your background, I, I always thought was remarkable when I first got to meet you at the Sage, you know, I think the Sage Surgical Conference was maybe that's the first right. one a couple of years right. ago. Um, but, you know, your career path, we've talked about this one-on-one. -on -one. We uh, always love kind of having conversations on emotional intelligence and, and, and culture. But you started, you know, in R&D and then moved into leadership over engineering, then over R&D, I think operations, compliance, um, then to a VP and, and then the CEO of exciting uh, startup that I think your leadership is critical in terms of, of where the company's going and going to go. But maybe share a little bit about some keys to your career path. And I, I think maybe, and we could talk about candidate perception or uh, executive, but I, I, I'd prefer if maybe you'd kind of, uh, give a, a CEO or executives that are listening a, a perspective on maybe what they should consider of the crossover talent. I see so many situations where people miss out on talent, where yeah. I call it miss the force for the trees because they're too focused on, you know, maybe a couple of skills and they're not open to crossover skills. It's a tough one, you know? Uh, um, so, the, the, my career path, we can talk a little bit about, and then tying it to how an executive could look at these gems, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Not that I call myself a gem, but I think, as I well, think about I, it. I, I'll, call, I'll call you a gem. I know many people that would agree with me. So we'll just, we'll take that out of your decision making and call you a gem. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's very kind. Um, so I started in engineering. Uh, I, I feel like it's mainly because I never really was presented with another option. You know, mm -hmm. like for me, I grew up in Turkey. So in Turkey, everyone who has a job is an engineer. My brother is in banking. He's an engineer, huh. <laughs> right? He went wow. to school for industrial engineering and then he is a banker now. And he's been a banker his whole career. Um, I can give, give example ex after example. You're a marketing executive, you're an engineer. You were in sales, you were an engineer. So wow. um, engineering has become a way to filter out folks in an arbitrary way. It's not right. I don't agree with it. But that's just the way it is in, in where I grew up. So mm -hmm. if you want to be able to compete for jobs, you had to go and get an engineering degree. And then... You know, I had an interest, like I was very curious about how things worked and things like that, but I wasn't one of those people who like broke down cars when they're 15, you know, like right. that's not, that's not how I grew up. I had an interest, certainly, and I was very, very curious, very like annoyingly curious. That's probably one trait that, that serves me well to this day. And I've learned not to be very annoying with it, but growing up, that, that's, you know, certainly a, a thing that was there. Um, but I wasn't necessarily like this amazing engineering talent, you know? Right. Uh, but that's what I went to school for. And I had this opportunity. I came here as an exchange student in high school. And I was very fortunate to get a scholarship to study. And that, you know, that's a big turning point for me. Whoever mm -hmm. made that decision, you know, whatever the, the group of people, I would love to go thank them individually. I don't know who they were, right? <laughs> You submit your application and then, you know, you get a result. Um, 
it was, uh, you know, to this day, I'm very, very grateful. But that's how I ended up in an engineering program. And I loved it. I really, really enjoyed problem solving and the teamwork that it required and how difficult it was. Electrical engineering physics is what I studied. So um, then uh, I started working for an industrial robotics company as an, as an IT. <laughs> it's funny to say. I was an IT an guy. IT. Yeah, I was. I was an IT guy. They, like they had a problem with their computer. I, I helped them. And <laughs> we wrote applications for them to, for the actual engineers to um, use in their day-to-day -day work and things like that. That's what I used to do. Then I started you know, getting involved in the robotics and I wrote robotics software. And there's a great anecdote there I can share with you someday and how that worked out. Um, okay. Talking about just showing up, you know, like we can dig into that if time allows. Anyways, um, so quickly I, I attached myself to people that really cared about what their products did, you know, what their work was doing. And one of our jobs, one of our projects was with J&J's Vistacon department, contact lens manufacturing. And we sat down with these folks and I was so envious of the pride they took in what they did. I was just sitting there in awe, like I'm super young still, right? Early 20s. Right. And I'm like, wow, I wanna be like that. I wanna have this passion for that these people have. And they would routinely talk about what it does for their patients and the quality. Like it was just in their vernacular. Right. We were we you were just hired. They were passionate about it. Definitely, right? And we were just hired guns showing up. We were like, oh, equipment here, equipment there. Like they're all the same to us. Right. But it's not like that for them. Um, so that's triggered this interest. And I think one thing I would say is this, Continuous interest and curiosity is what drove me from position to position or, or on a corporate ladder. You know, I joined Boston Scientific, and there, the way I became the leader of the group I joined was simply offering to help other people or asking for help. Right. Like I would get my stuff done, and I'd be like, hey, what are you working on? Oh, you got this laser welding problem? I would love to help. So Can smart. I be involved, right? And and I like like I said, this curiosity and interest, and I think perhaps like, I don't have a lot to lose, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at where I come from, what what can happen to me? I didn't come from like a really poor background or anything. We were fine, but we don't have the stuff that I have here. And I still, right. you know, I was still raised in a family, and I was fine. Yep. So. I think like detachment from all these things helped me take risks. I could ask questions. I can sign up for assignments that, that others may not. Um, I'd work late. I was young. I can do that. And quickly, people are like, hey, Berg is helpful. You made right? yourself indispensable in certain aspects. Right, like he's helpful. Um, yeah, if, he, if he's going to manage us, we'll be okay with that. <laughs> you know? Um, Certainly, I was very ambitious. I think um, part of that part of me, like I would do it differently now. I think I was like I think ambition is very good, but I think uh, making people feel people feel safe is better. Mm. And sometimes ambition can be threatening. 
Right. Yes. Um, so that's a lesson I've learned over time. Uh, I think overall, my benefits hopefully outweighed the risks. <laughs> and I, you know, I got different promotions within Boston Sci. And then, um, and then startup journey began. I, you know, joined a startup. I met the CEO on a plane ride. <laughs> a year later, I started working for him. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, there, there's anecdotes like this in my life. I think, again, it's one of those where I'm just curious and I'm interested. And, and we had a six-hour plane ride. It turns out it was a six-hour interview that I didn't know. Which is it's a really important point, though, right? In terms of how you interact with people, how you treat people. And even when you said, hey, ambition can be can be threatening, right? Or it can be. But if you're if you're if you're real, if you're transparent about your ambition and you're focused on bringing value to other people, then because the last part, that last part is key. Because it's, it's not only, about you. It's not, not about not, you. Because if it's not, then it can be manipulative. Yes. And that's where yes. you if can it's self, Yes. If it's self-serving, mm. people yeah. are instinctive, right? right. You, think, you think you may have gotten away with that? Trust me, you didn't. No. no if you what didn't. you're doing is self-serving, people, lizard brain, over thousands of years of evolution, it knows. Right. <laughs> Right. You have not tricked anyone, only yourself, probably. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think that's the important part. I think actually that's probably the switch for me is like it's not about me and it never mm. should be about me. And once I've made that, it's a transformation, then then it's it's like whole world changes, you know? Yeah. Levels of consciousness. Yeah. Really? I mean, I think that's the... Um, that's probably the big, uh, transition point when I look at my career. And I would say if you're an executive and evaluating somebody for an executive role, like an engineer or a marketing person, whatever salesperson, I think this is the, the, the big, um, uh, I don't want to call it a skill but makeup personality this is probably what you want to tease out like what are these people willing to do mm -hmm. for other people you know like yes. how, how motivated are they they don't not everyone has to be right right this is not a bad thing you may not be that interested in 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 like affecting tons of people and that's great that's great but then perhaps then then leadership isn't the best role for that. Right. Right. And what you just said is, I mean, it, this is the thing that I, it amazes me, you know, across company companies don't necessarily do a great job of evaluating technical skill in a functional area, like actually mm -hmm. capturing, like if you're a software developer, you probably ought to have to do some sort of software developing to meet a minimal skill set. And then if I'm interviewing for software developers, then I have that consistent where I capture it and I can compare and contrast. Hey, right. these these two, you know, hit the minimum threshold, but they're well above it. These other two, one of them didn't quite hit it. The other one's just above it. So after that, like these are these two are stronger, and I know that because of my process. But now after they've hit 
that minimal skill, what is their emotional intelligence? Problem yeah. solving. Are they going to fit the culture? What's their personal why? Because you can look at data over a variety of sources. But, you know, mm-hmm. leadership IQ is one of them. Uh, out of failed hires, 11% were because the candidate didn't have the actual skill set they were hired for, essentially. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. other 89 cent, 89% was low emotional intelligence. They weren't coachable. They weren't motivated, which is mm-hmm. incredible, right? So they weren't really excited about what they were doing or the product category, or they, they uh, had poor temperament. They just really didn't get along well with others. Sure. So how important is it to, you know, to hire people that, in terms of what you're talking about, that intangible? Well, and, and clearly for a leadership, right? Like mm-hmm. part of your question was your birth, your journey versus what would you say to an executive that perhaps is missing out on these crossover skills, right? Right. And 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 for me, I think, you know, the, the what you just mentioned on roles that are not necessarily leadership or C-suite, I think there's probably... Um, Criteria that applies to both, but certainly specifically, I don't like the word individual contributor versus manager. It's, it's right. in our vernacular and people use it very commonly, but it doesn't really portray what's going on. You know, there is no individual, there's no such thing. No, it's but, crossover skills and crossover projects in almost every functional area. Yeah, like you, you don't just like sit there and do what you're told. You're, that's right. that, that that doesn't exist. So, right. um, but but rather like uh, perhaps the way to look at it is uh, an um, like a caregiver. <laughs> I know, like a leader should be that. Uh-huh. Like, I, you know, almost like a parent um, versus people who don't have that responsibility and accountability necessarily. It's not necessarily uh, their job to set the culture. And when, you know, I think, like, I think this might be controversial, but we say a lot, like everyone has a part to play in the culture, Mm -hmm. but that's not true. That drives people crazy. That drives those engineers who just joined the company, think that they can affect the culture, but they actually can't. It drives them crazy. How could they? I mean, what what influence they can have over a C-suite? The power well, dynamics are off. The, the the exposure is not there. Um, well, there's there's a huge difference to your point of driving and directing culture and being a part of a culture, correct? And potentially a positive piece of the culture, right? Correct. You can be a positive or a negative piece. Correct. Of it, yes, but, you may but, or may not fit. Right. And you you get the opportunity to come in and uh, be a good player. You're not the coach. You know, I mean, whatever sports you want to look like, you want to look at, uh, depending on the amount of players, you get the opportunity to come in and fit and be an an adjunct, a positive piece to the culture. And if you come and you bring enough value and you're promoted and then you might get into a situation where you get to be a part of directing part of the culture or culture within the culture in terms of a departmental standpoint. But no, just because you got onto the, you came onto the company doesn't mean you necessarily get to, to, to direct yes. culture. And, and I think, I think companies get this wrong and C-suites get this wrong. Like th- there's this, there's this clearly you have to set your culture for your team, right? It needs to be mm. in the DNA. 
But make no mistake, you are in charge of that. It You can't wash your hands off of it, be like, we said everybody is a part of it, so it's not my problem. That's that's wrong. That's a cop out. It, it is it is squarely on your shoulders, and it goes all the way to the top singular person in charge. It's your business and is your problem. If the culture is broken, you can't blame your people. No. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the SSI Executive Conversations podcast. If you'd like to see more, please follow us on LinkedIn and subscribe to our YouTube and RSS. Visit SureXSolutions.com to learn more about SSI and receive a complimentary consultation.